everyone. This is Mike Lindstedt, president and co-founder of the Nehemiah Project. And you are listening to the Nehemiah Project podcast, where we replace hopelessness with hope. Well, we're back on our podcast series where we are looking at different characters in the Bible and different historical time periods. And we're drawing the principles that we can draw so that we can be encouraged. And we're looking at the absolute magnificent glory of God uh, put on display throughout history. Mm. As we're going to see today, God is the sovereign king over all of history. It is explicit in the portion of scripture that we're going to be considering today. Um, And there's just simply no way around it. It doesn't matter who is the world power of the day. God is over all. And that is encouraging to God's people because as we're going to see, times can get pretty, pretty hard. Yeah. And man, isn't it good to know that even though the Lord has allowed tremendous difficulty to come into our life, he is still the God over it. And he has a good purpose in the midst of all of it. Yeah. If you think about it, this whole section of scripture that we're walking through with Nehemiah last week, with Ezra, what we're going to talk about even with Esther. This is a time of turmoil caused by the sin of the people, rejecting God as the one true God, God following through on his justice of what he said he would do, but showing his grace by restoring. But all this timeline is is a long period of, of suffering, of being exiled, of being in other nations, being slaves. You know, with Esther... Um, Haman trying to wipe out the entire Jewish nation. Right, right, like, right. These, these are all hard things, but God's sovereignty, God's love, God's grace, and God's deliverance on his promises, he He is with the Israelites, his chosen people, even through this time. Um, so it should give us a lot of great hope. What we hope we, we take from this, uh, listener, is what it looks like for for Christ to be with us in our sufferings. Um, what it means to be able to trust the Lord and, and find a hope that produces joy even when things are really difficult and really hard. Yeah. So like Chad mentioned, we're going to be looking at the book of Ezra today. And um, Ezra and Nehemiah actually in the Hebrew text, the ancient Hebrew text and ancient Greek um, translation of the Old Testament are one book. So in our American, you know, more, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> up-to-date version, if you yeah, want to call it that. Yeah. Um, there are two books, right? In in the uh, Protestant, there we go, the Protestant canon. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was way off. <laughs> <laughs> Samson. <laughs> but there are two books, but that's not how they are, were originally written. Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book. And um, it's thought that the author of First uh, and Second Chronicles, which was also one book, um, is the same author of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that author is thought to be Ezra, the man. Um, And so that's just a little bit of background on the actual books themselves. But these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, are absolutely critical for our understanding of this portion of time during history. You know, one of the great things about the Bible is it's an account of historical uh, truth. Like these aren't made up stories. They actually happened and they are continuing to be verified by different archaeological discoveries. Mm -hmm. And so the 
the time period that we get in Ezra and Nehemiah stems from 537 BC all the way to 432 BC. So it's basically a hundred years. Um, and without the record of Ezra and Nehemiah, we would have no um, inspired information about this time period. We would have different historical texts um, like Josephus and some of the books that are found in the Apocrypha, but those are not inspired by the Spirit of God. Mm. What we have in Ezra and Nehemiah are inspired texts superintended by God himself, and they are without error. And so um, this is an incredible gift when we think about it for a moment. This is an incredible gift just from that standpoint alone. But what's even more incredible is what God is doing throughout this entire time period. And so we're going to look at the first four verses to start today in the book of Ezra. And I'm going to unpack a lot of the prophetic background that's, that's contained here, a lot of the historical background, just to really set the, the historical stage so that over the next few podcast episodes, we can have a good um, structure, if you will, or scaffolding around a structure so that we can start to build this thing up. Yeah. Um, because if we just read Ezra and Nehemiah without understanding the rich history that's, that's there in the background, it, we wouldn't get the same uh, amount of blessing out of yeah. it. You know, it's, it really is very like mining gold and silver. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy, right, to get that to get mm. that sweet ore out of the mountain. Yeah, context is king. That's to, right. To understand any anything that's being communicated, understanding all the context is is necessary. And so, mm-hmm. excited to to dive in. So let's uh, go ahead and read the first four chapters here in the book of Ezra. It says this: Now, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia. In order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Israel, or in Jerusalem. So everyone who remains at whatever place he may sojourn, let the men men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle together with a freewill offering from the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So what we have here is a proclamation from a pagan king concerning the God of Israel and how the pagan king Cyrus feels that he is the one who has been appointed to build Yahweh, the God of Israel, a house. Mm. Now, notice in verse 1, it says, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to give this proclamation. Yeah. So what we need to understand right there in that phrase that says the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, what we need to understand is what was that word? Yeah. Because it's a small amount of words there, but in that is contained all of the prophetic history mm-hmm. uh, concerning this time period. So if you're sitting at home and you have a Bible, you'd want to turn with me. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 24, 
verses four through seven to get started with this because there's a lot to unpack here and it's amazing. Jeremiah 24 verse four says this, then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will recognize as good the exiles of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will return them to this land, and I will build them up and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am Yahweh, and, there, and they will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. But like the rotten figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says Yahweh, so I will give over Zedekiah, the king of Judah and his officials and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and the ones who inhabit the land of Judah, the land of Egypt, rather. I will give them over to be a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and a proverb, a byword and a curse in all places where I will banish them. And I will send the sword, the famine and the pestilence upon them until they come to an end from being upon the land which I gave them and their fathers. So that section there shows us that there is a distinction made amongst the people of Israel by Yahweh himself that he is going to consider or recognize as good the exiles of Judah, whom he has sent out into Babylonia. Now, the rest of the people of God, this would be specifically in this context, Zedekiah, the king of Judah and his officials and the remnant of Jerusalem, they're going to be pretty bad off. <laughs> God's going to hand them over to be a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth. They're going to be wiped out, in other words. Mm -hmm. Now, what we also need to understand here is that about 100 years before this prophecy was given, the 10 northern tribes known as Israel had already been exiled by the Assyrian kingdom. So a large percentage of God's people have already experienced tremendous judgment from God. Now, the kingdom of Judah, which is just the two southern tribes, they had about 100 years where they still didn't repent. Right. So like you said at the beginning of this podcast, Chad, all of this exile, all these things, it's not like a, a knee-jerk reaction by God. Mm -hmm. He gave them hundreds of years to right. repent. He was very, very patient, but God will not be mocked, right? Right, and his justice would come about. That's right. So what we're still doing now is still unpacking the word that came from the mouth of Jer Jeremiah. So what I want you to keep in your mind there is that Judah... The exiles of Judah has been singled out by God's electing love and he's going to protect them and he's going to have them return back to the land after the exile is over. Mm -hmm. How long is the exile going to be? Well, we look at Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole land, speaking of Jerusalem, will be a waste place and an object of horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then it will be when 70 years are fulfilled that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares Yahweh, for their iniquity 
even the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Okay, so the people are going to be exiled for 70 years, Mm -hmm. the people of Judah, just for 70 years. And there's a very particular reason why it's 70 years, which is the subject for another podcast. (laughs) But it has to do with Israel not honoring the sabbatical cycle. They didn't practice Sabbath for 490 years. And how you get 70 out of that, again, is the the subject for another podcast. But that's why. But then justice will be had against the nations whom God himself used to enact judgment upon his own wayward people. Now, you might be scratching your head. Well, that doesn't sound very kind or loving or fair. Yeah, but these nations already desired to take over the land. So the Lord, That's right. you know, just allowed, allowed them to do what they already wanted to do as a, as a means of his sovereign uh, punishment for the, his nation. And let's, let's look at what the Lord looks at, the heart. That's right. If you go to Isaiah chapter 10, the example of Assyria, and then we'll go to the example of Nebuchadnezzar, king mm-hmm. of Babylon, who's in mm-hmm. view in our text we just read. But listen to what God says about Assyria and the king of Assyria. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 12. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Now remember what I said, listener. Mm-hmm. Assyria had already come in and sacked the 10 northern tribes of God's people and thus exiled them. So they had already experienced judgment at this point in when Jeremiah gave that prophecy. Now we're hearing about Isaiah giving a prophecy concerning Assyria. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Mm-hmm. So God is taking credit for what Assyria in their own desire wanted to do. Yeah. And it says in verse six, I send Assyria against a godless nation. That's his own people, by the way. And command it against the people of my fury to capture spoil and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But it does not intend to act in this way. So now he's talking about the heart of Assyria. It did not acknowledge the king of kings The Assyrian king, as we're going to see, had a very prideful heart. Verse 7, again, but it, referring to Assyria, does not intend to act in this way, and it does not think in its heart in this way. Rather, what is in its heart is to destroy and cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalnol like Carchemish, or Hamath like Arphad, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So this is the insight into the heart Mm -hmm. of the king of Assyria saying, what is the God of the Israelites. He's just like the God of the Samaritans, which I smash, right? That's, he's, yeah. he's referring to Yahweh as an idol, yeah. right? So here's in verse 12 what the God of heaven says. So it will, it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his eyes, which are raised high. And he goes on to talk about, again, the heart of the Assyrian king. Furthermore, and I'll skip over this for time's sake, but in Daniel chapter four, you should go read it, listener, because King Nebuchadnezzar thinks the same way. Mm -hmm. He has a dream that scares him and he calls in Daniel to interpret it and Daniel interprets it for him. And um, Nebuchadnezzar 
dramatically affected by that interpretation. But then a year passes and the dream comes to full fruition. Nebuchadnezzar is the king reigning over the world, basically. And one day he's on his rooftop and he's looking out at his vast kingdom and he has this thought, oh, look at this great kingdom that my hands have built. (laughs) Even though Daniel told him, the God of heaven is going to deliver the kingdom into your hand, Nebuchadnezzar. But see, the heart of man is, look how mighty I am. Right. And the second that Nebuchadnezzar has that thought, boom, a voice out of heaven comes, and Nebuchadnezzar gets hemmed up pretty good. Yeah. He ends up becoming like a beast who goes and lives out in the field for seven years. Yeah. So all of that is bound up in what we're still trying to figure out, which is the word of Jeremiah the prophet. So Judah is exiled for 70 years, God says, don't worry, people of of my kingdom. I'm going to get justice on the people who oppress you. Don't worry, I'm in control, right? And you're going to come back after 70 years is up. And then let's go to Jeremiah 29 to finish this off. So many people have heard Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, right? Yeah. Well, let's see the context behind that those words because the context is king. And... Um, I think it takes on even a a more beautiful meaning when we understand the context. So chapter 29 uh, in Jeremiah, starting at verse 1. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, again, that refers back to Jeremiah 24, verses 4 through 7. That Mm -hmm. is specifying those particular exiles from Judah. Now, here's what's interesting, because we remember we read verses 8 and following of chapter 24, how it talked about, I'm not going to bless Zedekiah, Jedekiah, all those other people who didn't have any faith in the Lord. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hand them over. Well, look at these verses. Verse 2, this was after... King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had gone out from Jerusalem. Yeah. So judgment had been enacted on that little group of people that God had specified before. Mm-hmm. And now this letter of encouragement is coming to those whom God chose right. to return. So right. all this is just like little bits of information that shows mm-hmm. God's sovereign hand yeah. over the course of history. And as we're going to see, that's what brings our people in the book of Ezra tremendous comfort. Now, verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of all of these other people that we can't pronounce the names of, <laughs> but it was, it was, these were directed to Zedekiah, king of Judah, which, who, he, who sent the letter to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God is writing a letter to that special group of people that he has chosen Mm -hmm. to return back to the land. And here's what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to your dreams which you dream, for they prophesy a lie to you in my name. 
and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Man, we could stop right there and talk yeah. about all kinds of stuff that we've seen in today's church. Yeah, but, right. but let's keep moving on. Verse 10, for thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return you to this place. What's that good word? Hmm. Back in Jeremiah 24, that good word. Yeah. Now, he says the famous verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will return your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have banished you, declares Yahweh, and I will cause you to return to the place from where I sent you into exile. Because you have said, Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, for thus says Yahweh concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who live in this city, your brothers who did not go with you into exile. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and I will give them over to be a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and an object of horror and of hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have banished them because they did not listen to my words, mm. declares Yahweh, which I sent to them by my slaves, the prophets, rising up early and sending, but you did not listen, declares Yahweh. You therefore hear the word of Yahweh, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Wow. Mm. So going back to Ezra now, in that little phrase that we saw, is packed in all of that. And that is the historical and prophetic background that is going to be a tremendous encouragement mm. to these exiles returning from Babylon. Yeah, I just think about what the Lord says there. You know, take sons, plant gardens. What he's saying there is, I'm going to restore you and you're going to have a life. It's not, you know, you're going to be able to, to live, to have generations you know i'm restoring my people back yes. to their proper place what encouragement and and that makes sense why ezra and nehemiah had such boldness to move forward with that yes. plan yes now one other thing that makes this even more incredible about god's sovereign plan because look nothing takes god by surprise mm -mm. and i want you to hear that listener you know we're a biblical counseling ministry we deal with people in the muck and mire of life yeah Right, and so often we think, how how can God be present in all of this? Right, mm. but as we're seeing right here, God is sovereign, meaning He is the King, He is in control, and yes, there is um, elements of surprise as far as we can tell that happen in our lives, but they don't take God by surprise, yeah. and He has a good purpose in the midst of all of them. But here's the key: we must listen to His Word. We must trust him yeah. because you had that example of the good figs and the bad figs in Jeremiah 24. The bad figs were those people who did not trust the words of Jeremiah the prophet because he was the man speaking for God. Mm -hmm. They didn't trust God's word, in other words. Mm -hmm. And therefore, God gave them over. Yeah. And it wasn't like it was one time they didn't trust. Like we said, 
hundreds of years had gone by. Yeah, and they had many warnings. Like you said, sent many prophets to you to tell you. That's right. And they didn't listen. So here's the other morsel for us. Back in Ezra chapter one, verse one, it says, now in the first year of, of Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, if you know the book of Isaiah, you know that starting at chapter 40 and on, it's all future prophecy. Mm-hmm. If you go to chapter 44, verse, let's see, 28, here's what it says about Cyrus. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and all my good pleasure he will complete. And saying of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. That's the book of Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. The foundation of the temple will be laid. That's the book of Ezra. Now, you know when Isaiah said those words? 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Does God know what he's going to do beforehand? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is mankind still a free moral agent given the responsibility of making decisions? Absolutely. That's right. But at the same time, does God's plan happen in a time frame that we don't necessarily always like? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's yes. 150 years. I mean, we're talking in, we're talking generations yeah. of time. And we get, we're going through suffering. We're like, why isn't this over tomorrow? Or why isn't this over today? It's yeah. like, I mean, the Lord may have for you a longer period of time than what you want, but he knows what he's doing in terms of what you need to be sanctified in. That's right. And... We don't like to hear that because that means hard times. It means hard times. You know? But again, what we do in the midst of hard times is going to determine the outcomes of our life to a large degree, right? God knows what he's going to do with us. God knows the decisions that we're going to make. We're still free to make them, but let's not play around <laughs> with not trusting God, mm-hmm. right? Let's trust him in the midst of our uncertainty because he knows what's mm-hmm. going to happen. He knows what he's doing, right? Like I just showed you, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about a man named Cyrus whom his audience had no idea who, I, who Isaiah was talking about. Mm-hmm. We don't know who Cyrus is because mm-hmm. at that point, the kingdom of Persia didn't even exist. <laughs> right. And Cyrus is the king of Persia. Yeah. <laughs> like none of that stuff would have made any direct sense to his immediate audience. Right, right. But the point is for us looking back going, wow. Isaiah was talking about Cyrus. Now here he is in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah. Yeah. So we see that thread, right? Mm -hmm. That whole time, Isaiah's prophesying, Jeremiah's prophesying, you have all of the prophets, they're all saying essentially the same thing. Repent. Yeah. Judgment is coming. If you do not repent, judgment will be poured out on you, but... There's a future promise yeah. of restoration for the remnant of Israel. Right. Because God is a God who always comes through on his covenants and his promises, which he made all the way back with Abraham, all the way back. like Genesis 3, Yeah, Genesis 15. 3. Yeah, so it's just the story of redemption that was set before the foundations of the world is coming about, will come about, will, will finish all in the way God has designed and planned for it to do. It's incredible. So now that we did that brief background, (laughs) 
let's get into the book of Ezra. We're going to go through the first six chapters just very briefly because um, we want to see, okay, well, all of these Jews that are coming back, they know all that stuff that we just learned. Right. They got it. That was part of their hope. That's right. That's right. So that's why it's necessary to do all that background. Yeah. We have to, in essence, put ourselves in their shoes. Yeah, because now we can understand the motivation of Ezra, the motivation of Nehemiah, the reason for these things um, that we couldn't understand before without that context and background. That's right. So that was the background. What we're going to do now is skip up basically to uh, chapter three. But briefly, I'll just mention a couple of interesting things about this. In chapter one, verse eight, you have mention of the king of Persia, Cyrus, bringing out the treasures from the house of God that Nebuchadnezzar had plundered and taken back to Babylon. Cyrus brings those out and hands them to a man named Shesh Bazar, okay, who is called in verse eight, the prince of Judah. So if you, if you want to study Ezra deeply, you'll see that there's uh, some peculiar things going on in the book. Shesh Bazar is a contested character. Is he Zerubbabel, who is the main character in the first six chapters, or is he a different person? Well, we're going to go ahead with the interpretation that he is the same exact person, and I'll give you the reasons as to why that is. But it's very interesting. I have to make notice of, uh, make, make mention of this. Shesh Bazar, there's a big history behind his name, but essentially the Hebrew meaning has to do with keeping purity or literally a purity incubator, right? Yeah. Now, remember Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 24. There's a select group of people mm-hmm. who happen to be of the line of Judah. Who comes through the line of Judah? Jesus. Jesus, right? So Shesh Bazar is the prince of Judah. And his name means purity incubator, right? He's been exiled. Now, I believe, based on the text that we're going to look at, this is the man referred to also as Zerubbabel in chapter 2, verse 2. And chapter 2 is a list of the exiles who returned from their exile. And verse 2 says, these came with Zerubbabel. He's right. mentioned first, which means he's the head, right? right. When they came with him, so right. obviously he's leading that charge. You know who's not mentioned in chapter 2? Shesh Bazar, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Zerubbabel literally means um, out of Babel or pressed out of Babel. And Zerubbabel is actually a part of Christ's lineage. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse mm-hmm. 12, there he is. If you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 27, there he is. Mm-hmm. So he may have two Babylonian names, although that might be unlikely. And this, again, is hotly debated. I think it's the same person, and here's why. Shesh Bazar means purity incubator. We know that Jeremiah gave a promise that he's going to preserve a small remnant of Judah. Mm-hmm. And we know that in the larger story of the Bible, Jesus, who is the purifier of the world, mm-hmm. who takes away the sins of the world, comes through the line of Judah. Shesh Bazar is Zerubbabel, who... When, when Sheshbazar is mentioned as Zerubbabel, you know where they're coming out of? They're being pressed out of Babylon. Right, right. So the purity incubator is now coming out of Babylon. That's what those two names mean there. Yeah. I'm going to stretch it and say, that's why I believe they're the same exact person. Mm-hmm. It's rooted in the prophetic context, it's rooted in the historical context, and it's rooted in the meta narrative of Scripture of God bringing his Messiah through the line of Judah. Right, right. So... That's, that is my interpretation. Again, I'm going to show you from the text why further I think that is. But you have this group of exiles coming in high hopes 
because of the word of Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. They're coming out of exile after 70 years. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, we see what they're up to. Uh, It says in verse 1, Then the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered together as one man. Then Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brothers the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God, of, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the legal judgment as each day required, and so on and so forth. It talks about how essentially they are beginning to establish Yahweh worship in the land. They're getting back to the law of Moses, getting back to what God required of worship with him. Now, you know what's interesting here? We'll take a moment just to make some observations. This parallels the Exodus account. Mm -hmm. The people were being delivered from their slavery, Right from Egypt into the land that God had promised, mm-hmm. they are set, and, and in the Exodus account they set up Yahweh worship, right, right? with the right. tabernacle and all those things. Right, what's going on here? They're being delivered from their Babylonian mm-hmm. slavery back into the land, mm-hmm. and what are they doing? Setting up Yahweh worship. I think it's interesting too. You see the the genuine worship of God in their hearts because of the fear of the, the fear of the people. They are. Worshiping the Lord, which is saying that they're trusting God to protect them from the people. Like they, they are, just like with Joshua in, in that book. You know, um, when Joshua leads them into the Promised Land, how the worship of the Lord would would be what they trusted in for deliverance, for defeating of the enemies, for all those things. And so, I think that displays even further their true trust in the Word of God. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in verses 8 through 13, it says, Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the rest of the brothers, the priests, and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. So they've been in the land for two years at this yeah. point. They set the altar up in the first year. Mm-hmm. Now they're getting started on the temple. Right. So what are they doing for two years? Well, they're living life, Mm -hmm. right? They're worshiping Yahweh in the land, right? They're taking care of basic necessities, building houses, et cetera, et cetera. And what's interesting here, what's implied in the text, is even though they're surrounded by all these terrifying people, again, just like in Exodus, right? Mm -hmm. God is preserving his people, in the midst of all of these people who could come in and crush them. There's no wall built yet. That comes in the book of Nehemiah. There's no real army. There's There's no no... army at all. Right. (laughs) Right? I mean, literally, if you want to know how many people came back, just go back and read chapter 2. It chronicles exactly how many people came back. They don't have a big standing military force at all. Yeah. But they began the work, it says in verse 8, in the second year, and they appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to direct the work of the house of Yahweh. And then it goes on to talk about how they did that work. And in verse 10, it says, So the builders laid the foundation of the temple of Yahweh. Now, I'm going to come back to that later on as proof to why I think Zerubbabel is Sheshbazar. 
but let it be known that the foundation of the temple was laid and that work was being orchestrated and headed up by Zerubbabel and Yeshua. Okay, Zerubbabel at this point is the, the head leader of all the people. He's the governor, yeah. right? Sheshbazar was called the prince of the people of Judah. Right, right. Yeshua is the high priest. Another interesting observation that parallels the Exodus account. You've got Moses in Exodus yeah. who is a prophet, yeah. who is a priest, right? Well, Aaron is the priest. He's the high priest, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Moses acts as a mediator. That's what go. I should yeah, say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Acts as a mediator, which mm-hmm. is a priestly function. Yeah. And he's very mu- he's not a king, but he acts as a governor of the people. Right, he's the leader. So all three of those offices, which are messianic types, yeah, are prophet, all bound up in one man. Prophet, priest, king. That's yeah. right. They're all bound up in one man in, in Moses. Mm-hmm. During this historical time period, all three of those offices get parsed out into three different people. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, just, again, God is doing something here, and he's showing yeah. us something. So um, it goes on to talk about how they've continued building the house in the face of opposition. But here's kind of a, I don't know, a bittersweet or sort of a lackluster moment. Look at verse 11. Uh, Once the foundation was laid of the temple of Yahweh, and all the priests stood with their apparel, with their trumpets, and, and all these other musical instruments, it says... And they sang and praising and giving thanks to Yahweh. They said, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever upon Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh, because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's households, the old men who had seen the first house of Yahweh, were weeping with a loud voice when the foundations of this house was laid before their eyes, while many in loud shouts with gladness were raising their voice, so that the people could not distinguish the voices of the shouting of gladness from the voices of the weeping of the people. For the people were shouting with a loud shout, and those voices were heard far away. So you have the laying of a, of a second temple foundation, but you have some of the old dogs. They're still there. They're still around, yeah, right? Yeah. And these old guys were young guys back when the first Solomonic temple and all of its glory was around. Yeah. And they're not so happy about this. Yeah. Because they remember the former glory. Yeah. It's almost like Adam and Eve mm. when they got kicked out the garden. Yeah. You know, they were still performing sacrifices. Right? That's implied by chapter four of Genesis, mm. right? Cain and Abel were doing that. But every day the sun was setting yeah. and they looked over in the direction of the sun was setting, that's where the Garden of Eden was. Yeah. And their heart must have broke every single night. Yeah, just realizing, man, we got kicked out. Like our sin causes... The former glory. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a, there's a real sadness and sorrow that comes along with sin. Yeah. Even though the Lord is restoring, and I think this is application for us now, that sin does have consequences. When we reject the Lord, even if we're his children, yeah. there, there can be lasting consequences that although the Lord would forgive us and restore us and there's a future hope, there's still the reality of what's lost. Yeah. And some things cannot be re- returned. That's right. You can look almost at every character in the Old Testament because they all sinned, yeah. you know, other than Abraham, right? Abraham, he sinned, but a lot of his sin didn't seem to have a dramatic effect on his life. Mm. that's purely the grace of God. Because you look at a guy like David, who's 
adultery with Bathsheba set off this horrible chain reaction in his yeah. life, in his family life. Yeah. Just un, untold wickedness that happened in that family, yeah. you know? Um, and to your point, right? It's like, yes, David was still a man after God's own heart, but he sinned, and there were yeah. serious consequences for that. That that didn't go away in his lifetime. That's right. Yeah. So again, this goes back to the larger point of application that we want to put forward. Trust in the word of God and do it, Yeah. right? It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. And do it. Right. He also said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, Yeah. right? So we obey the law of God because we love God. Yeah. And it's that love of God that drives us to live accordingly, mm-hmm. right? And so um, that's a... That, that's the point of application that we're driving home in this podcast. Yeah. And all of this historical context and everything just goes to magnify that beautiful point yeah, yeah. that God is sovereign, that he has given us by his grace the word, yeah. right? The word was made flesh in Jesus Christ, but we've also got the written word for us, which explains Jesus Christ to us. It explains mm. the holy God, the holy creator God to us and his plan of redemption. And so... Getting back to Ezra chapter three, the old dogs are seeing this new temple and they're sad because the former luster of glory is not there. So you hear this mixture of joy and sadness that was quite loud and the enemies of God could hear it. And the enemies of God come on the scene in the next verse, chapter four. Then the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Eshurahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Ah, so the world says, hey, we want to worship with you guys. That's right. Now, this on its face seems sincere, but it is not. But remember the warnings. That's right. The false prophets, the false, you know, dreams even. Like, there's going to be people. Oh, yeah. There's going to be people that seem like they're saying good things, but it's not from me. So let's just observe what Zerubbabel and Yeshua say. Mm-hmm. Verse 3, But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God but we ourselves will together build to Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Again, King Cyrus gave them this commandment, but these Jews know their Old Testament. Mm -hmm. They know what God is doing. And nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that the people who were there before I bring you to return are going to help you. They're not going to help you. Right. That's a test. Yeah, they're going to take over. That's right. God always calls his people to be separate, always calls his people to be holy, always calls his people to be sanctified, okay? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we go into some sort of monastic mode where we like hide ourselves in our homes and, you know, study the Bible all day and have no mixture. Obviously not. Right. Jesus in John 17 prayed for his disciples to the Father and he said, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, Keep them from the evil one. But we can't be unequally yoked, as Paul would tell us. That's the whole point. 
right? You can't tie yourself. The world has nothing to do with God, and God has nothing to do with the world. In in those terms, you don't you don't intermingle. You don't partner in, in a intimate way with those of the world. That's right. And here, if they would have allowed them in to help, certainly the world would have turned either turned their hearts again because that's what was happening before, mm-hmm. or they would have probably taken over or or oh yeah done something to undermine it, all the things precisely it they wanted to undermine the work of god that was going on here yeah. these people were pagans they didn't just worship yahweh they said that they're offering sacrifices to him but that's a half truth yeah even if that were true they're also offering sacrifices to all the other gods right of the assyrians who brought them here of all the other, it's like a hodgepodge. You could study it. It's like yeah. a hodgepodge of people groups here. Well, it's just like anything else. You know, to to believe in all gods is to believe in no god, right? To to believe that everything is true is to believe that nothing is true. And I think it reveals something deeper than that. I think it reveals truly and honestly that your allegiance is truly to yourself. That's right. Because all those gods serve you. That's right. You're using them. <clears throat> and, and that's the break in the first commandment. And that's really the the underlying issue with all false worship is that all idolatry ultimately all roads lead back to yourself as God, mm-hmm. setting up yourself. I'm going to serve these things because of how they serve me or because of what they may do for me, so on and so forth. So, yeah, you can't intermingle with that, and they were wise in, in rejecting that. That's right. Now, again, they don't have a standing military force, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. These people do. The Jews don't. Mm-hmm. Um so this right here was not only a test to see if they were going to remain true to Yahweh, but it also came with a price to pay, yeah. as we're going to see now in verse 4 and 5. So the people of the land, that's the hodgepodge mix of people, the pagans, discouraged the people of Judah yeah. and dismayed them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. Now, that's a pretty significant amount of time there. But what we're going to see next is that they went further in their opposition, and they finally had an opportunity to use the political system against the Jews, and they utilized it, and they were successful at temporarily thwarting the work. Mm -hmm. Verses 6 through 24 are a record, actually, and they're actually written... um, between government officials. And I'm not going to read the whole thing here. I'm just going to give you a paraphrased understanding of it. But basically in verse 13, here is the political charge in chapter four, verse 13. Now let it be known to the king that if that city, Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. is rebuilt and the walls are completed, the Jews will not give tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. So it's a political charge. Yeah. Look, King, uh, they're, they're writing to King Artaxerxes. If you let these Jewish people do this, they're not going to pay taxes. Yeah, and you're they're gonna, not going to do you're it. You're going to lose money. You're going to lose a lot of money. And they're going to, and he goes on to talk about some other things here. Basically, they're going to become a thorn in your side. Mm-hmm. If you let this happen, look at the history books. Look at what the Jews did when Babylonians came in. Mm-hmm. Look at what the Jews did when the Assyrians came in. They were a problem. You don't want that happening again. Furthermore, they're not even going to pay taxes if you start doing that because they're going to give tribute to a different king, Yahweh. The political system is what these pagans used against the people of God. That's not too much different than today, is it? 
Nothing new under the sun, brother. Mm -hmm. So verse 23 and 24 is the bad news. It says, then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shishmei, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by military force. So King Artaxerxes got the letter from the pagans. He goes, oh, we got to put a stop to that. Writes them a letter back, gives it to those guys I just mentioned. Those guys I just mentioned come to Jerusalem with military force and coerce them to stop the work. Mm -hmm. So you have a political charge followed up by military coercion. And then in verse 24, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem stopped. Mm -hmm. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. Now, the work stops... And it stops for about 14 years, okay? That's the time gap from verse 24 that I just read to chapter 5. Now, listener, let's have a point of application here. You got a promise from God. You know the Old Testament promises if you're a Jew at this point. You know that the word of God from Jeremiah was spoken. You know that Cyrus, who was spoken about by Isaiah and Jeremiah, came and made a proclamation. You are now in the promised land. And all of a sudden, it seems like the promise of God is not coming to fruition. Mm -hmm. Can you relate to that? Yeah. I th but I thought, I thought, God, you called me to do this. I thought, God, you, you had this for me to do. Mm -hmm. And now your faith is tested again. Right. Is God going to come through? Is it coming through on your timeline? Are you, are you sure you trust that this is what the Lord is going to have? Um, all those things will swirl through your mind. And, and as Mike said, it's, it's a testing of the faith. But the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, as James chapter 1 writes. That's right. And we consider that joy. Here's an opportunity. Struggles and trials are just opportunities. And that's an opportunity for your faith to stand firm in your faith or to walk away from it. Yeah. And at each point, you're going to be tested with that choice. That's right. And it's going to come over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it says of the devil concerning Jesus Christ after he was defeated, uh, by Jesus in the wilderness that the devil waited until an opportune time. Yeah, he just waited. Just waited. He's patient. Mm -hmm. So the Israelites, uh, the, the, the tribe of Judah that came back, they're now facing some real discouragement. And it's for 14 years, <laughs> not days, yeah. right? It's not going to get better in two weeks. Yeah. We're talking about years, bro. And they're discouraged. And you know what the Lord does in his grace? Chapter 5, verse 1, 14 years later now, and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. And you can go read the book of Haggai. You may have never even heard of that book. Yeah. It's two chapters. It's tucked away in there in the Old Testament. Yeah. The whole book is about this exact time period. And we get some insight mm -hmm. into the, to what the Jews were doing while they were discouraging. You know what they were doing? They were spending the resources that they had on themselves. They stopped giving to the work of God. That's actually what Haggai, the prophet, indicts them for. Listen yeah. to these words in chapter 1, verse 3. Then the word of Yahweh came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while my house lies in waste? Paneled houses was like top dollar back then. Mm -hmm. This is not like a... Um, small thing yeah furthermore he goes on is it not time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in waste so now thus says yahweh of hosts set your heart to consider your ways 
You have sown much, but bring in little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the house of God that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says Yahweh. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. You bring it home and I blow it away. Why, declares the Yahweh of hosts, because of my house which lies waste while each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has restrained its dew and the earth restrained its produce and i have called for a drought on the land on the mountains on the grain on the new wine on the oil and on the what the ground brings forth on men on cattle and on all the labor of your hands set your heart to consider your ways when you're discouraged do you stop giving to what the lord is doing at your Mm -hmm. local church do you stop serving the lord with the gifts that he has given you do you turn inward and start to sulk are you going into a self-loathing period Right. If you do that and you sit back and wonder, what's going on with my, my checking account? What's going on with my bank account? Why am I feeling so depressed all the time? Why this? It's because you're not living according to the word of God. Yeah. That's Look, right. even when times get bad, when we, we have, when we have times of discouragement, that doesn't give us a free pass on all the things that are mentioned by God himself. Mm-hmm. These people in their discouragement, started to invest their capital in themselves, started to stop serving the Lord and started to serve themselves. And Yahweh says two times, set your heart to consider your ways. You have sown much, but bring in little. You are never satisfied. You you earn wages and you put them and they got a hole in your pocket. You never have enough money, right? Right. Why is that? Because you're not doing what the Lord has called you to do, Israelites, in this particular context, right? It's the word of God. That's right. Right? So Haggai the prophet says that, and then the book of Zechariah is an incredible book. I would really encourage you to read it. But effectively, both of these prophets are raised up to come into the people of God and to encourage them with the word of God. Mm -hmm. And guess what the people of God start doing? Chapter five, verse two. Then Zerubbabel and Yeshua arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Yeah, so they repented. They repented. Yeah. And that's a grace of God. That's right. Right? That's right. Now, let's make some more observations here because what were they encouraged by? The word of God. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And it's also understandable in a sense, like all the turmoil they faced, they were challenged and tempted, and they did turn inward. They said, whoa, we can't rebuild the tent. We're going to get taken over by military force. And, but the Lord was still probably blessing them with their fruits of their land and everything. And so they were getting rich. And they were saying, well, he did say just live in the land and do, you know. Right. And so, but they had forgotten. And, and man, our flesh is so tempting just to make us forget. We for, they forgot the purpose of God That's for right. bringing them back That's into right. the land. But God in his grace, this shows how gracious God is. Because he doesn't chastise them as unbelievers. That's right. He just says, have you forgotten? And he just rebukes them and they repent, showing right. that they are true believers. Yes, yes and yes. So 
they get back to the reason for their uh, being there in the first place. And notice what happens here. Remember, 14 years have passed, so even the enemies of God have probably forgotten a little bit. All right, mm-hmm. they're you know, just kind of living there now. They're not rebuilding that temple. Look at verse 3. At that time, the governor of the province beyond the river and his colleagues and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them, saying this, who issued you a decree to rebuild this house and complete this structure? (laughs) (laughs) Who said y'all could start doing this again? That's right. What? That rhetorical answer? Uh, God did, Yeah. right? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were rebuilding this house, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius and then a document be returned concerning what we were doing. And so then in chapter uh, verses 6 through 17, there is another official government document that is sent. Uh, it says this, this is the copy of the letter which Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and his colleague and their colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. So the enemies of God write to Darius, um, and, and then they also give correspondence from Zerubbabel to Darius, and they just inform Darius of what's going on. And they say, uh, the Jews do, Darius, you need to check the history books. We have been given right by Cyrus, king of Babylon, to do this. We are only doing what our God has commanded us to do and what King Cyrus has given us the permission to do. And it says here in verse 14, also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, and brought out from the temple, these King Cyrus took out from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one whose name is Shesh Bazar, who had been appointed governor. That's Zerubbabel, right? Mm-hmm. He said to them, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt in his place. Then that Shesh Bazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. You know who... Chapter 3, verse 10 says, laid the foundations of God of the house of God in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, yeah. right? So they're getting back to my, my yeah, yeah, <laughs> interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so then it says, in, finally, in verse 17, so now, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. And if it be that a decree was in fact issued by King Cyrus to rebuild that house of God in Jerusalem, then let the king send to us his will concerning the matter. So they just say, look, we're not doing anything wrong. Your king has already allowed us to do this. It was your people who opposed us. You need to set this right, king. So let us know what your answer is, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what chapter six is all about. They get permission from King Darius, who again, uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse one says that Yahweh turns the king's heart like water wherever he wishes. And so we see again, the sovereign God directing the kings of the earth to accomplish his will. And the end of chapter 6 and verses 13 through 22 show us that finally the temple was completed uh, fully and that all of the sons of Israel and all that had come back were able to celebrate the Passover in the promised land in the temple of God. Again, paralleling the Exodus account, showing us that God is faithful to his word and that we as God's people should trust him, read his word, and do his word. Yeah, and he's no different yesterday, today, or tomorrow. 
I think it's interesting to see the parallel accounts of how the Lord keeps doing very similar things throughout yes. history because he's the same God always. Right. And he will continue to be the same God until, well, he will be forever. That's right. <laughs> so a couple of points of application just to finish this off. What do we learn from all this? What do we see God's people doing? Well, we see God faithfully giving him, giving them his word. We see them trusting his word. Mm-hmm. We see them doing his word. We see times of discouragement don't give us a free pass on doing his word. Right. We must always practice the worship of God according to his word, whether times are good or times are bad. And mm-hmm. if you find yourself in a time that is very challenging and difficult, and I know many of you are going through those times, be encouraged. Yeah. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And our instructions from him are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Look to serve other people for the glory of God. And God, the faithful God, will bring you through it all the way to the end. That's right. I can't say it better than that. <laughs> all right, then. Well, we thank you all for listening to another episode of the Nehemiah Project Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nehemiah Project Podcast. For more resources about addiction recovery, suicide prevention, and overcoming other life-controlling issues, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, tnproject.org. If you or someone you love is struggling, don't hesitate to reach out to us by calling 985-205-3022.